MSW Media. News with swearing. Daily beans, daily beans. Daily beans, daily beans. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Wednesday, May 27th, 2020. Today, the World Health Organization halts a hydroxychloroquine trial because of health concerns. The widower of the Scarborough staffer asks Twitter to remove Trump's conspiracy theory tweets. Mick Mulvaney seems to think we overreacted to COVID. Glenn Fine resigns from the Pentagon. The Supreme Court refuses to stop an order to move inmates from a COVID-ravaged prison. The Trump team killed a rule designed to protect health workers from pandemics. A dozen states are reporting upticks in new cases, even as the national picture improves. And a rise in cases makes guarantees difficult for the Republican National Convention. I'm your host, A.G., and with me today is Jordan Coburn. Hello. How are you? I'm good. I just woke up from a nice nap, so I'm refreshed and good. Awesome. Yes. How are you? Uh, I'm good. Uh, I am uh, back on, what, like day two of eating clean again, so I really want cookies. <laughs> That's the worst. <laughs> Getting over that part. I'm staring at a package of Oreos as we speak. <laughs> I know. I have many, many tubes of Thin Mints in my home and uh i don't think they're safe um but uh everything's good uh yeah we're gonna we you know we're getting ready for friday's um happy hour meet and greet on crowdcast that's going to be fun uh that's at 4 p.m for patrons and then we'll uh, tweet the link out to the public at five because we know not everybody can swing um you know the the three bucks to to subscribe to be a premium subscriber right now. Uh, and so we just want to make sure that that's available to everyone and we'll take your questions live and answer them and have uh, cocktails and, and a good time. And I think our theme is masquerade. Everybody show us your masks. Um, so we're excited about that. Uh, but other than that, yeah, just, you know, working, writing, watching the news. Same old, same old, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I went to the doctor today. I got that thing done. Oh yeah, how'd that go? It was uh, it was really painful, honestly. Um, so that was kind of a uh. bummer. But it was only painful for like ten seconds. But it hurt like fuck. Ryan was like, "Oh, you'll be fine." I didn't even feel it. And then I called him after, and I was like, "That shit hurt so fucking bad." And he's like, "Yeah, I know. I just didn't want to tell you." It's <laughs> like, oh great. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, tell what did you have done again? Well, she just like had to take a, I, ju- I just have like a thing on my leg that's like, it's just changing and weird and stuff. So she wanted to biopsy it and just take it off just to be careful to get the results in a week. But she just like took a freaking ice cream scoop chunk out of my knee, basically. I like looked down at it after she did it and was like, oh God, that was Ugh. a bad idea. I thought happened. Yeah, I had to have something like that taken off my finger, and the removing it part wasn't as bad as the getting the novocaine, getting the numbing yeah. stuff. Like they just shoot it all fast into you, and it burns because yes. you're wicked. And then, yeah, totally. That's what hurt me was the part that's supposed to prevent it from hurting. <laughs> right. Exactly. I felt like. It honestly felt like she had done the whole thing without giving me any kind of numbing whatsoever. But I know that that's not true because it would have been excruciatingly painful if she didn't give me anything. But but yeah, the whole process was great. It was like 
there was hardly anybody in line I actually there was no one in line when I went there and then um they just took my temperature when I walked in walked right up to the person and there was like the shield you know when we were talking and there's rules in the elevator for like only two people at a time but I got my own elevator and Mm -hmm. it was like super quick super easy and yeah I felt super safe it was fine good I'm sorry it hurt that sucks that kind of shit always makes me think of like the old west you know when somebody had to have a bullet taken out or some shit like that and they would just have some whiskey mm-hmm. and like bite totally. bite on some leather or something you know? yeah like, exactly fuck. i know in this society we've grown so accustomed to like never feeling any pain really so to actually feel some it's like jarring but it was totally fine and she was awesome so well good i'm glad everything went okay and that you felt safe and that they took precautions and that just sounds sounds good Mm -hmm. sounds like you felt secure and i think that's important definitely thank you all right well we do have uh, a lot of news we have a lot of updates for uh for you so why don't we hit the hot notes hot notes all right jordan what do you have for us today I have a few stories. Uh, first, <laughs> first story, uh, just looking at some of the states that are starting to see their ca- virus cases go up that have started to reopen. There's about a dozen of them that are being reported, and at least half of those states that are seeing more cases were part of the reopenings that have been happening in late April and early May. There's some, you know, currently it's like... I guess it's hard to pin down exactly if the numbers are going up because of increased testing or if they're just going up because they're going up. I imagine it's a combination of both. But the states are Alabama, Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, and Tennessee. And they started seeing an uptick in cases several weeks after moving to reopen, which to me seems like that's just people catching it and just getting it more. Uh, not necessarily a testing thing since it's a few weeks after. That kind of seems like the exact timeline that that would happen on. And then Arkansas, North Dakota, and Oklahoma, they apparently never did statewide stay-at-home orders, but they started reopening businesses officially, and they're also reporting an increase in cases. And then the Washington, D.C. area has been locked down for a few weeks, uh, for weeks, longer than that. And they also saw a jump in new cases, too. And they're supposed to be reopening Friday. And it's hard to tell, because California just reopened, and we have an increase in cases, um, I think, um, probably, and I hope that, uh, you know, Johns Hopkins or, uh, the media starts looking at hospitalization rates as opposed to new cases, because like you said, it's hard to tell because we are testing more frequently, although the tests and the testing is not reliable. There's a lot that are coming back false positive. There's a lot of false negatives mm-hmm. and we're only testing people under certain circumstances. So we aren't like testing everyone. Uh, and so I think we just need to watch the hospitals, you know, and see how, see how many beds they have left. I know I spoke to a friend of mine in San Francisco, um, who works at a hospital there and they have 18 ICU beds and, and no openings left. And it's a big ass hospital. And so, you know, I, and she's seeing more COVID patients. So, you know, we just need to, I think uh, it would make more sense to keep an eye on hospitalizations than on, death counts and new cases because of all you know all of the variables you just mentioned definitely yeah i think that's a smart take for sure looking at hospitals makes the most sense um because yeah everything 
outside of them seems to be incredibly unreliable at this point. I, I want to go get an antibody test, but I haven't done it because I'm like, I don't really see the point right now in doing that if it's like, if they're not even reliable tests. Like, am I just going to expose hmm. myself and potentially other people maybe to like more germs or something going into a space to get tested and then drop a bunch of money and then still not know? If the test is even, like, accurate. Yeah, like, would you act any differently if it came back positive? I wouldn't. I'd be like, it could be a false positive. Right. I, I'm... And and there are, sto- you know, there are studies that show that even people who have antibodies can be reinfected or at least care to carry the virus again asymptomatically and spread it. Mm-hmm. And so my whole point of not going out interacting with people is so that I don't spread it to them. So I don't think I would act any differently, you know? Yeah, totally. Maybe I would look into donating plasma. I, I would for sure look into that if I tested positive. But even then, it's like, I imagine they'd want to test me again just to double check and I hope I wouldn't have to pay for that. <laughs> There's probably like a three times test. You have to like, mm-hmm. you know. Our buddy Drew from Whistle Stop, he got tested and then he wound up donating plasma. I think he was one of the first to do that in San Diego, actually, because he got he went through COVID-19 like when this whole thing was first starting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he did. I remember that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's that's that news. Next story is about Las Vegas. Las Vegas is... And I heard this from some some birdies um, before it was like starting to be reported just of MGM and like major hotel chains and stuff just planning on opening. And it's now very much out in the public. And they're tend- and then, of course, there was the words that were said from the mayor, which fun fact, did you know? <laughs> My mom just told me the mayor of Las Vegas doesn't technically cover the strip because the strip is actually in Paradise, Nevada. I never knew that, but growing up, the Las Vegas mayor, Mayor Goodman, always did everything that was like strip related. But I guess technically there's actually a mayor of Paradise, which is very strange. Anyways, that lady. What? I didn't yeah. know that the strip wasn't technically in Las Vegas. Yeah, it's in, yeah, it's in Paradise, Nevada. That's bananas. It is bananas. But yeah, that... Uh, Vegas mayor is she didn't have a good moment she doesn't have a lot of good moments (laughs) when it comes to this stuff no she didn't that was uh what you're I think you're referring to is that interview that she did where where she said you know we'll be the guinea pigs yep yep exactly and they're gonna tentatively open in early June they've been hit incredibly hard one third of their economy comes from the that in like industry so hospitality and leisure um but their unemployment hit 28.2 percent in april that's the highest in the u.s and in nevada's history and that's just insane there have been at least 8,000 cases in nevada and as of tuesday at least 396 people have died over the last Mm. week uh uh, the metro area of las vegas was adding on average 102.7 new cases a day so they're definitely not done and they're definitely not over <sighs> over it but now you have a situation where you know it's like so many so many people move to that city to work in that industry or you know grow up there and wind up working in it and it's just like they've been putting so much money into new stadiums and new sports teams like we just got the Raiders you know they're they're working on like Raider Stadium Vegas Knights has seen like huge success there the hockey team and everything and they're I think mm. they're my grandma was telling me they just got like a 
like a women's basketball team, I guess. I hadn't even heard of that, but that's what she was saying. Point being, they have all of these stadiums and plans for massive sporting events and like even outside of gaming now they're they're adding this whole other element to the economy and and it's like who knows how long it's going to be until those are at full capacity but the casinos they're planning on operating at 50 percent and there's going to be all these new policies and everything but um they're they're like taking out slot machines and rearranging how how they're seated and stuff on the floors on the casino floors and i guess at the card tables you can't even like touch the cards yourself I guess and it's like only three people for for a blackjack table and only four for a poker table so it's Mm. just gonna be so fucking different and like yeah I can't tell you how many of my friends parents growing up were like you know card dealers or or like cocktail waitresses and it's it's just such a huge part of the economy so it fucking is really really sad for how hard it's hitting them and it it makes sense that they're eager to get back because they're suffering. I mean, yeah, like those statistics, arguably they're suffering in some ways the worst out of anybody in the country. So it's it's scary, but it's also scary to imagine a bunch of people flocking to Vegas. And mm. the, the whole point of Vegas is to, like, be close with people, essentially. That's kind of what you do when you go there. The nightclubs are just disgustingly packed like all the time (laughs) they're not going to open up the nightclubs when they open up the casinos obviously but it's just going to be something to watch and study for sure but yeah they're they're going to be starting in june so see how that goes and best of luck and gambling had already taken a hit because you know millennials Mm -hmm. don't gamble um so yeah it's been tough times and i you know i'm thinking you know there's a lot of table games you play where you aren't allowed to touch the cards but like the chips how are you gonna what how's that gonna work like little chip tongs like what are you gonna do i don't even know that's so true i didn't even think about that you don't even touch the cards anyways i totally forgot about that that's true huh i i don't know what the whole thing with the chips are you get you get yelled at yeah <laughs> i've been yelled, yeah that's I've right been yelled at. <laughs> i totally <laughs> Yeah, I totally forgot that that's even a thing. I go, well, yeah, what do people do? They just would like grab the cards and run or something? Like, why Why do they have to start doing that? <laughs> you might be palming an ace, right? No, oh, yeah, that's I, true. I, but the chips will be interesting because that's where all the germs spread is the money and the chips. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially when you yeah. think of those scenes of people bathing in all their chips, you know, just in all their glory. Ooh, uh, <laughs> no one's coming uh, up that hot in Vegas. It is not meant to be that yeah. way. Uh, unless you're in those sketchy back rooms, <laughs> I mean, I might, I might have rubbed like twenty singles on my face at one point, but other right. than that, you know, haven't we all? Um, yeah, right, <laughs> right. <laughs> when you get to, when you get changed to go to the strip club and it just looks like you have a fat stack of cash, but it's all ones and fives, and you're just like, yeah, yeah baby, <laughs> it's a good feeling. Capitalism. Um, what are you gonna do? Oh. Mm. Uh, <laughs> Next story I've got is coming out of the RNC drama. So Trump, as you, you know, as we, I forget, did you talk, I don't, I don't remember if you spoke about it already, but he basically is telling North Carolina, I don't, I don't want to have the RNC, I don't want to have the convention there unless you can guarantee essentially that we'll be able to do it at full capacity and like how we normally do it. And and their, their democratic governor is like, I'm, I'm not going to give you that promise you know that's that i'm these are separate things politics and health and no this is three months away there's no way i can tell you right now that you can 100 percent do that yeah as as such georgia and florida 
their governors are basically saying we'll do it and they're they're reaching out now trying to move it there but Give it's it to like mikey mikey will try anything yeah <laughs> yeah it's a huge i it's a fifty thousand person event i didn't know that many people went there fifty thousand people it's insane cost millions of dollars to produce so the just the logistics alone of like shifting that all three months out is pretty gnarly and i, I think it's gonna happen i, I could totally see it happening because Especially since the governor of North Carolina, you know, is Democrat and Trump's favorite thing to do is to, like, punish Democrats in any way, really, that he can. I could totally see him just being like, all right, cool, but then fuck you guys. We're going somewhere else. But then it's like, I don't even know how how much pull he has with... I don't even know how the fucking RNC works. Either way, I would imagine if they have a chance to kind of, like, do something um, against or at least threaten a Democratic governor and then follow through on it, they they would do that. But who knows? It also, I think, might be really expensive to switch. But they seem to have a lot of money. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, they definitely do have a big war chest. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they got a million dollars from Kelly Loeffler's husband, who's, and the charges <laughs> were dropped against, the investigation was dropped against her today. So, Damn. Yeah. Yeah, so we'll see what happens. I, if it doesn't happen in North Carolina, I'd imagine... I don't, who fucking cares you know outside of like the jobs uh and like what it does for that you know local economy when like a massive event takes place somewhere um aside from that i can't really see too many negatives to it not happening there but i might feel differently if i was a republican that's the punishment for north carolina is is the the millions and millions of dollars in economic stimulus that they would receive from hosting such a large event but of course you know the governor's like look this is three months away we don't have the data to guarantee that we would even have those businesses open at full capacity at that point uh, you know we're willing to address it as we get closer to the event they don't start major production on it until july anyway uh so you know but trump's gonna do what trump's gonna do mm-hmm. definitely and uh, my final story today is about hydroxychloroquine trials. The WHO has temporarily suspended those on Monday as a precaution after that study came out that we reported on that shows there seems to be an increase in the likelihood of a patient passing away from COVID-19 if they're also taking hydrochloroquine or some sort of um, other related form of chloroquine is what this says. I don't know what that means, but apparently like the the test that they did that we reported on had 96,000 patients, nearly 15,000 of them were given the hydroxychloroquine or that related form of chloroquine. Um and and apparently some of those people were on an antibiotic and some of them were not, but the the numbers for the percentage of people dying that were on hydrochloroquine is is a lot higher than the people that were not. I think it was like 18% for people that were on hydrochloroquine, uh, of the people that died were on hydrochloroquine, and then I think it was like, um, yeah, I gotta look at the numbers again. Point is, WHO saw that study, heard that study, and is temporarily halting their trials because I just don't think anybody really wants to touch that right now. Seems all like a bad idea. If anyone's mm. going to listen to what data seems to be coming out. I did have a question, though. Since I don't know science stuff, really. I was wondering mm. how much of that... I completely believe that hydroxychloroquine is a stupid thing to promote. Especially 
given the increasingly negative studies that are coming out about it. But how much of that do you think could just be if you're more seriously ill, they're more likely to like have given you that drug to try to see if it worked and then you know you're just so sick that you still like wound up passing away how much of it do you think would be i mean i guess how much is a silly question but do you think that could be a part of it too uh it depends on on what the cause of death is if it's arrhythmia then that is a side effect a known side effect of hydroxychloroquine and Mm -hmm. hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin but if you know if it's whatever other underlying condition uh, or pre-existing condition that they had or or respiratory failure then it could be um be unrelated it 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 all really depends but yeah. you know after i mean the just the study showing that there's just not a significant enough improvement to use it totally. at all totally um it's it's like well and and we're ending up having more arrhythmia and, and and heart problems, you know, from people who are taking this specifically at higher doses, and that could be part of it too. You know, the worse your symptoms, maybe the higher dose you get. Yeah. Um, but you know, in these in these clinical trials and these studies, then they they have specific control groups and mm-hmm. and look at different doses, and they usually try to. Uh, at least from my understanding of the study, give the dr- administer the drug in different dosages to people who have similar symptoms. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Definitely. That that a, makes sense. That way, it's not a variable. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Totally. Um. But yeah, those are those are my stories for today. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you for those updates. Um. We're going to be right back after this quick break with some news from under the radar, and then Jordan will be joining me later on in the show for the good news. So stick around. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey everybody, it's AG, and this episode of Daily Beans is brought to you by my favorite puzzle game app called Best Fiends. Best Fiends is part of my personal self-care routine. It is a great distraction when I need a break from today's insane politics. And the best thing is the more I play, the more fun and exciting it gets. I can level up my characters. I reach new levels. It feels like uncovering a new layer in a story. And the best part is that you get to be a part of it. And it's an amazingly fun five-star rated game. It's free to download. It's got a bright, vibrant design. It's very relaxing, fun characters. It combines an exciting story with challenging puzzles, so it keeps my brain engaged, which I love. It's a casual game, so you don't have to be a gamer to play it. You collect all these characters, you level them up, you use them strategically on each level. Uh, I'm on level 160 now, um, so that's good. But th- we have we have some listeners that are on like a level 1,000. It's bananas. But you can share your progress via social media and let us know where you're currently at. Best Fiends has thousands of levels already, and they have brand new levels all the time, and they have events and characters, so it's always fresh. It's hours of fun right at your fingertips. And the favorite part that I love about it is you can play offline, which is great because I have a power outage right now, and so I am able to play Best Fiends. It doesn't require the internet so uh, I like to play it when I'm traveling or you know sitting here in the dark Uh, it's very just so relaxing and they have over 100 million downloads tons of five-star reviews best fiends is a must play download best fiends free on the apple app store or google play that's friends without the r best fiends all right everybody welcome back here is the news from under the radar in a heart-wrenching letter the widower of a woman whose 2001 death has become fodder for baseless conspiracy theories spread by trump is appealing directly to Jack Dorsey, the head of Twitter, to take down the president's tweets. In the letter, it says, quote, I'm asking you to intervene in this instance because the president of the United States has taken something that does not belong to him, the memory of my dead wife, and perverted it 
for perceived political gain. That's from Timothy uh, Klausudis, who wrote in a letter to Jack Dorsey, as I said. This is dated last week, but it didn't gain attention until today when the New York Times' Kara Swisher published the letter in an op-ed. You should read the letter. Uh, but Klausudis' letter was not enough to move Twitter uh, or Trump. Twitter will not be removing the posts at this time, according to a spokesperson. Quote, we are deeply sorry about the pain these statements and the attention they are drawing are causing the family. We've been working to expand existing product features and policies so we can more effectively address things like this going forward. And we hope to have those changes in place shortly. You can make that change right now for this instance. I don't understand. Uh, you know what? You're right. This We need a rule for this. It'll be in place shortly. Contact us in a while. Like, what the fuck? Uh, Politico writes that Klausudis' wife, Lori, died at age 28 from a fall. Uh, precipitated by an undiagnosed heart condition, as confirmed by the medical examiner and police. But 19 years later, her death is making headlines because of her employer at the time, then-Representative Joe Scarborough from Florida, uh, Republican. She was working in a Florida office while Scarborough was in Washington at the time of her death. But now, Scarborough is an outspoken, and thanks to MSNBC, Morning Joe, prominent critic of Trump. So, of course, fringe conspiracy theorists have circulated... um, that this from the past is it's bubbling up again and uh, intimating that Scarborough might have murdered um, Lori Klesudis. The president and his family were quick to pick up on the thread in multiple tweets this month. Reminds me of Seth Rich and his family and what they had to endure from those conspiracy theories, which have been proven conspiracy theories because Manafort himself said it was an inside conspiracy theory uh, in an email. And on Tuesday, after Klaus Sudis's letter drew widespread attention, Trump doubled down. Of course, he incorrectly described it as a cold case, called Scarborough a psycho, and wrote, So many unanswered and obvious questions, but I won't bring them up now. Law enforcement eventually will, question mark. In his letter, Klaus Sudis suggested to Dorsey that, quote, Twitter's policies about content are designed to maintain the appearance that your hands are clean. Per his reading of Twitter's terms of service, other users would be banned for tweets like this. Klosutis also wrote of the enduring pain that his wife's loved ones feel over her early death and how this conspiracy theory has made it harder for them to move on. Quote, I have mourned my wife every day since her passing. I have tried to honor her memory and our marriage. As her husband, I feel that it is one of my marital obligations to protect her memory as I would have protected her in life. So that's happening. Uh, And now, from The Hill, former White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney said Monday he believes the United States has overreacted a little bit to the coronavirus pandemic. Overreacted a little bit. Arguing that Americans can get back to work sooner rather than later if they observe social distancing and wear masks. The former congressman and budget chief for Trump cited recent CDC guidance finding the virus does not spread as easily on surfaces to assert that the country may have gone too far with restrictions. We might have saved too many lives. We may have prevented too many deaths. Coming from Mick Mulvaney, the guy who said, we have a hard time firing federal government employees just for being Democrats, but we figured out a way. We move their jobs across across country and make them quit. Fuck their lives up, take their salary, hurt their families. That's that guy. Mulvaney said on CNBC, quote, the fact that it's difficult to get this disease from touching stuff should sort of reset how we look at this. What it means is that if we're careful about social distancing and putting on masks and so forth, we should be able to go back to work sooner rather than later. Now, 
I get where you're coming from, Mick. You're saying, hey, apparently it doesn't spread. It doesn't live on surfaces for as long as we thought it did. And so perhaps with just staying six feet apart and wearing masks and gloves, we can, you know, that would be enough. Uh, we don't have to come in and shut a restaurant down and to disinfect it every two hours or or something like that. But to say we overreacted, we... we we saved, we, we, you know, we, we saved too many lives. Um, don't you want to overreact? Don't you want to err on the side of not dying when this shit happens before you know about stuff? I mean, I know that, I know that Trump has been the opposite. He's for let it sweep like a wave across the land. And then, of course, when he learned that that would take 2.2 to 4 million lives, he uh, revised his statements. But but to say, you know what, next time we have something really dangerous that we don't know about, let's not be so cautious. That's just fucking dumb. Oh, I hate that guy. He said, I think we've sort of lost perspective a little bit and we've overreacted a little bit, Joe. He said to, on, to what, Joe Kernan on CNBC. He referenced the 2017-2018 flu season when roughly 80,000 people died of the flu to draw contrast between how the country reacted then and how it's reacting to the coronavirus, which has killed nearly 100,000 Americans. Hey, remember, remember a century ago when we were dumbasses? Let's act, we should act that way. We should act like we haven't learned shit in the last 100 years. I mean, we did it, we did it then. What, I mean, you know, there was only a massive second wave. Why, why, well, you know, why are you being so careful for Quote, not to say that COVID is the ordinary flu, that's not my point. But my point is that almost 100,000 people died two years ago from the flu, and the country didn't shut down. It's time to sort of deal with this in the proper perspective, and that's to allow us to get back to work safely. That's the same argument Trump's made. Um, and it comes as the White House is urging Americans to reopen, obviously. As we discussed yesterday, um, half of the reopen accounts on Twitter are bots. And the virus has forced scores of businesses to shutter. Nearly 40 million Americans have filed for unemployment. And oddly, Mulvaney has large, largely remained out of the public view since his departure from the White House when he was replaced by Mark Meadows. Mulvaney was also the past head of the OMB, Office of Management and Budget. He's in those three emails that were withheld, well, 10 emails between three people um, about Ukraine, about who ordered specifically the, the hold to be put. We know who it was, but those have been demanded, court ordered. Uh, right now, Mick Mulvaney is the ambassador to Northern Ireland, so whoopity-doo. And a watchdog at the Pentagon, we know him as Glenn Fine. He uh, has submitted his resignation Tuesday, more than a month after Trump effectively fired him as chairman of the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee, a group of independent watchdogs uh, that were tasked with overseeing the $2 trillion in emergency coronavirus funding. He was, a, he was nominated to be the head of that, was replaced by a Trump sycophant. One Pentagon official told CNN that Fine, the Defense Department's principal deputy inspector general, was told not to res or excuse me was not told to resign and did so on his own accord still trump replaced fine as the pentagon's acting inspector general last month rather than allowing him to remain in the job until a nominee for the permanent role was confirmed 
a move that was viewed as an effort to thwart his leadership of the Coronavirus Accountability Review. No, you don't say. Fine's resignation takes effect June 1st, according to uh, Department of Defense Inspector General spokesperson Dorina Allen. Um, Fine, Glenn Fine said in a statement, It has been an honor to serve the inspector in the Inspector General community, both as the Inspector General of the Department of Justice and the DOD Acting Inspector General and Principal Deputy Inspector General, performing the duties of the Department of Defense Inspector General. As we know, the role of Inspectors General is a strength in our system. They provide oversight to help improve government operations. Um, the quote, they are vital. Uh, they're a vital component of our system of checks and balances. I'm grateful to have been part of that system. After many years of the DOJ, DOD, and OIGs, uh, I believe the time has come for me to step down and allow others to perform this vital role. I wish the men and women of the DOD, OIG, and the Inspector General community continued success in these important responsibilities. That's further from Glenn Fine's statement. General Mattis, former SecDef, said on uh, behalf of Glenn Fine, uh, it's or about Glenn Fine. It's regrettable seeing such a highly competent nonpartisan patriot and public servant leaving government service. Mr. Glenn Fine represents all that is noble in taking on the hard work of keeping government honest and responsive. He will be missed. Trump has now removed or pushed out multiple inspectors general. We've gone over this multiple times on the show. Uh, from CNN, quote, the sequence of events reflects Trump's dim view of the government oversight, particularly when it presents inconvenient facts. For Trump, who expects loyalty from all corners of his administration, the work of the IG offices are a feature of what he often derides as the deep state. Several sources previously told CNN that Trump had, a, had long sought to remove Fine, a career official, viewing him as a holdover from the Obama administration. That effort escalated after Fine was selected by his peers to chair the Pandemic Response Oversight Panel, tasked with preventing waste, fraud, and abuse in the use of coronavirus relief money. And Supreme Court today denied a request by the federal government to put a temporary hold on an order by a federal court that could lead to the release or transfer of over 800 inmates from a federal prison in Ohio, where nine inmates have died from COVID-19. The inmates' victory appeared to be mostly procedural, uh, and it might probably be fleeting. The court explained that the government had not asked them to block the district court's most recent order, and it indicated that the government could return to the Supreme Court to seek a new stay if circumstances warrant. Moreover, three justices, Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, and Neil Gorsuch, indicated they would have granted the government's request. Today's order came in a case filed uh, last month by inmates at Low Security Federal Prison in Elkton, Ohio. The inmates argued that they face a disproportionately high risk of contracting COVID-19 because they're in close proximity. In an order issued in April 22nd, the district court instructed officials at the Bureau of Prisons to evaluate elderly and high-risk prisoners for transfer out. Uh, either through some form of early release, such as home confinement, compassionate release, parole, community supervision, or by moving them to a different facility that didn't have an outbreak of COVID. What a fucking thought. The inmates returned to the district court this month to enforce that April 22nd order. They stressed that although the, the Board of Prisons had identified, Bureau of Prisons had identified 837 inmates as elderly or high risk, none of them had been released or moved yet. Five were waiting for home confinement, while six others had been designated as potentially qualifying for home confinement. And on May 19th, finding that the Bureau of Prisons had been thumbing their nose at their authority to authorize home confinement, the district court ordered the government to make full use of the home confinement authority and to reconsider the inmates' eligibility 
without using certain criteria, such as amount of time remaining on an inmate's sentence. The district court also ordered the government to act quickly on applications for compassionate release and to explain by May 26th today why any prisoners who were not eligible could not be transferred to another facility where social distancing is possible. And the government came to the Supreme Court last Wednesday asking for a stay. In a filing by U.S. Solicitor General Noel Francisco, the government argued that allowing an order would require the release or transfer of over 800 prisoners, and that could jeopardize public safety and interfere with the management of prisons. In the brief opposing the stay, the inmates emphasized that as of May 19th, there were 135 active COVID cases among the inmates at Elkton, plus eight active among the staff. The only way to lower the risk was for inmates and staff to transfer out of the facility. They stressed that the district court's May 19th order didn't mandate the release or transfer of any inmates. Instead, it simply instructed the Bureau of Prisons to explain why. Despite the April 22nd order, no one had been released. They just wanted to know why that was due. That was due today. Moreover, they noted, although the government's real complaint is with the May 19th order, it hadn't actually appealed, much less asked any court to block that order. They claimed the conditions at Elkton violate Eighth Amendment. Uh, uh, Eighth Amendment rights, which bans cruel and unusual punishment because it houses them in close quarters and it refuses to take available steps to meaningfully reduce the risk. So, in, in that one-page order today, the court explained that the government was seeking a stay only of the district court's April 22nd preliminary injunction, even though the district court had issued a new order enforcing the preliminary injunction, particularly because the government had neither appealed nor asked the Sixth Circuit to put it on hold. So the Supreme Court would not now block the April 22nd injunction, but the government could return to seek a new stay. And finally, in federal documents obtained by NPR in 2017, Trump's team stopped work on a new federal regulation that would have forced healthcare industries to prepare for an airborne infectious disease pandemic like COVID-19. NPR has the scoop on this. There are still no specific federal regulations protecting healthcare workers from deadly airborne pathogens. Um, this fact hit home during the last respiratory pandemic, H1N1, in 2009. Thousands of Americans died, dozens of healthcare workers got sick, and at least four nurses died. Studies conducted after H1N1 found voluntary federal safety guidelines designed to limit the spread of airborne pathogens in facilities often were not being followed, and there were shortages of PPE. In the spring of 2017, two years before COVID-19 hit, the Trump team formally stripped OSHA's airborne infectious disease rule from the regulatory agenda. NPR could find no indication the new administration had specific policy concerns. Instead, the decision appeared to be part of a wider effort to cut regulation and bureaucratic oversight. This happened in my agency, too. They just came and said, get rid of uh, one out of every three regulations. Just get rid of it. They didn't care what it was. NPR also found the lack of fixed regulations allowed the Trump administration to relax worker safety guidelines. Federal agencies did so repeatedly this spring as COVID spread and PPE shortages worsened. And as a consequence, hospitals could say they were meeting federal guidelines while requiring doctors and nurses to reuse masks and protective gowns. So more evidence of why we were not prepared. Uh, we will be right back with that interview I was talking about earlier with Josh Geltzer about what happens if Trump refuses to leave office and loses when he loses the election in 2020. So stay with us. 
Hey everybody, this Helping of Daily Beans is brought to you by Ancestry DNA. There are many paths to finding your family story. Whichever one you choose, tracing your family generations back with a family tree or uncovering your ethnicity with Ancestry DNA, it is easy to get started with Ancestry. An Ancestry DNA test tells you where your ancestors are from, and Ancestry's billions of records and millions of family trees online let you discover their personal stories. Ancestry DNA can reveal ethnic origins and provide historical details that bring a unique family story to life. Ancestry DNA doesn't just tell you what countries your family's from, but it can pinpoint regions, specific regions, which gives you an insightful geographic detail about your family history. You can trace the paths of your recent ancestors, learn how and why your family moved from place to place around the world. No other DNA test delivers such a unique and interactive experience. You could find a famous relative, maybe a photo of your great-grandma as a little girl. I was able to find my great-grandpa's military records. I knew my dad and my grandpa were in the military, but I did not know my great-grandpa was. But whatever you find, it is sure to change the whole way you look at your family history. Uh, like I said, I've told you this before. I found out I was uh, related to a, a comedy banjo band leader from the Clico Club in New York in the 1920s named Harry Reeser. Uh, and so apparently comedy and music is in my blood. So it's easy to start making discoveries with Ancestry. Grab an Ancestry DNA kit and start a free trial to amplify your discoveries with Ancestry's billions of records. Start exploring your family story today. Head to my URL at Ancestry.com dailybeans to get your Ancestry DNA kit and start your free trial. That's Ancestry.com dailybeans. All right, everybody, welcome back. Joining me today for the interview is former Deputy Legal Advisor for the National Security Council and the Executive Director and Visiting Professor at Law at Georgetown's Law Center's Institute for Constitutional Advocacy, Joshua Geltzer. Joshua, thanks for agreeing to speak with me today. Thanks so much for the invitation. So I wanted to hit you up because recently it seems that Trump's rhetoric about a rigged election uh, you know, uh, blame others for that, which you are guilty, uh, is, it seems to be getting louder. Uh, and over a year ago, uh, just after the midterms, you wrote an opinion for CNN asking what happens if Trump refuses to accept defeat in 2020? And I was wondering what prompted you to ask that question? There were two moments that loomed large in my mind and led me to write that piece. The first came from the 2016 campaign season. I remember watching an October 2016 presidential debate in which Trump was asked whether he'd honor an electoral victory by Hillary Clinton. And he said something like, I'll look at it at the time and then I'll keep you in suspense. And I remember sitting on my couch and looking at my wife and thinking that's not this democracy as I know it. And I'd kind of forgotten about that until 2018 when, as the midterm elections were approaching, Trump issued a strange tweet about how the Democrats were benefiting from Russian interference uh, in the 2018 elections, which, of course, was contrary to everything we saw and had been hearing. And again, he seemed to be setting up the possibility of contesting or resisting election results he might not like. Yeah. And uh, it's he kind of did that, too. I know I know in 2018 there was a 17 month long investigation launched in Florida, for example, um, you know, about voter fraud and, you know, widespread voter fraud. And, and of course, we now have we're, we're now facing down this pandemic. We might all have to vote by mail. Um, but in that piece, you outlined four steps that the American you said American system of governance can take to get ahead of Trump trying to cling to power. What were those four steps back in February of 2019 that you outlined? And have we taken any of them? Are we on any kind of a right track? Do, have, we, have, we, have we been following the action plan? Unfortunately not. Maybe this shows the limited power of even what I hoped was a 
zinger of an op-ed in that I don't see these steps being taken, but I also don't think it's too late. I'd love to see them happen now. So I point to four actors that I think could get in front of this problem and try to at least make it much harder, raise the cost, political pain of Trump trying to fight an election result that went against him. One, the Electoral College. You could have states' electors commit that they will uphold uh, their state's decisions as to whom to vote for rather than allow President Trump to bully them into uh, voting otherwise uh, amidst claims of some sort of voter fraud or foreign election interference. Second is Congress. Senators, representatives could pledge not to delay or alter vote counts based on any one candidate's objections, whether it's Donald Trump or Joe Biden. Third, you could have governors. 39 of America's 50 state governors won't be up for re-election this November. That shows a certain continuity across party, across geography. They could use their voice, at least, to uh, commit themselves, whatever they think of Trump's politics, to demand that election results be adhered to. And finally, uniform and civilian uh, members of our, of our military and defense department could just affirm when they're in settings like congressional hearings that they understand to whom their loyalty is owed on January 20, uh, 2021 at noon. And it's based on the vote of the people, not whatever the president might claim about the vote of the people. And, yeah, I mean, it's just... I feel like he could fight this, but there are reports out there. I know we we reported uh, on this back in at the end of April, I think, uh, about a month ago, that uh, there is a team in the White House preparing for a transition of power. In fact, just days ahead of the statutory deadline, the Office of Management and Budget sent a memo to the heads of all executive branch agencies instructing them to designate a senior career employee to oversee transition planning. Uh, are they just going through the motions so they don't run afoul of the law? Look, I hope not. I, I realize the things we're talking about here are extreme. I hope they don't come to pass. I hope we look back at my op-ed and this conversation and realize that we've gotten ourselves worried, perhaps unnecessarily. But I do see those reasons to worry, given the first three-plus years of Trump. And we've seen Trump and people who work for him adhere to certain aspects of the law only for him to demand that other aspects be broken. Take even the fight over the inspectors general right now. He is adhering to the 30-day statutory deadline for giving Congress notice of his intent to fire, even as he is going ahead and firing inspectors general across our government in ways that many of us think are very damaging to accountability and the rule of law. So just because one thing seems to be going right isn't enough to, to make me think that we're in for a smooth road ahead. I guess what I'm saying is I'm still worried. Yeah, I mean, a lot of things have, quote unquote, gone right. Uh, the Ukraine aid eventually made its way <laughs> to Ukraine uh, as it as it had to under the Impoundment Control Act, as I think the GAO found uh, it would be illegal to do that. Now we've got, you know, threats for withholding disaster relief or state aid to governors who don't play ball. Uh, which was actually used by Professor Kaplan in in testimony and impeachment testimony as an outrageous example of of you know abusing your power and here we, and here we are. Um, so I just but you, you you know you point out and I think you point out very succinctly and correctly in in this op ed that you wrote, which is now making its rounds again, that Trump just has a pattern of behavior uh, here, and I was wondering. Uh, what else did we see 
in 2018 and 2016 uh, that could sort of give us clues as to what Trump might do in 2020? I think one of the most glaring examples of uh, Trump's illegality on an issue that already had been much talked about is his, in my view, stealing of, so to speak, parts of, of the budget from the military and elsewhere to go to a border wall after Congress had specifically rejected spending that additional money on the border wall. Indeed, after our whole country had been through uh, one of the longest government shutdowns in recent memory, all over this question of how much money would be spent on the border wall. So to have that uh, shut down and the human uh, damage inflicted on on folks who work for for the federal government, uh, then to have delicate negotiations between Trump and Congress to reach an outcome, and then to take a bunch more money anyway, that strikes me as having the hallmarks of brazenness when it comes to Trump's illegality that um, that we continue to see. We see them escalating, at least rhetorically, in some of the things Trump and indeed others who work for Trump say about how they may deal with stay-at-home orders as, as this pandemic uh, continues. And they also show uh, that, that that also speaks to what's happening with the Justice Department and these, to my mind, infuriating um, handling of cases involving a couple of people very close to Donald Trump, Roger Stone, Michael Flynn, applying legal arguments that the Justice Department would apply in basically no other cases across the country. All of that suggests that this is a president whose view of the rule of law can be at least at times to serve him personally and politically rather than to serve the country as a whole. Yeah. And I mean, you know, you're right. Even not just at the border wall, was he taking money from like maintenance of, of military bases, uh, but money from EU defense funds to, to help uh, push back Russian aggression. I mean, it was ridiculous where that money was coming from. But uh, you, you brought up the Department of Justice, and I know you're former DOJ as well. What role in 2020, uh, I mean, how do you see this playing out? Like if, if Trump loses and he wants to contest the election results, what role does the Department of Justice have in that? Because that's frankly where my main concern is, is that we've got uh, an attorney general willing to uh, make end runs around the rule of law in order to carry out this president's wishes. And so what what role would the DOJ have? What would it look like, like just practically, if if Trump were to contest these results? Would it be a court? Would it be a DOJ thing? What, what does it look like? You know, it, 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 these answers are all coming from, from our, our attempts to imagine what ha, has thus far been relatively unimaginable in, in American history. But I agree with your starting place. We have an attorney general who's handling of the Mueller report, who's handling of these criminal cases, who's assigning of uh, investigators to investigate the earlier investigators all speak to a desire to serve Donald Trump and his political whims and in some cases even his more conspiratorial thinking and outlook and messaging that if one asks, well, what would it look like if we got to a nightmare scenario in, in November? Could it look like an Office of Legal Counsel opinion somehow construing the federal law about how the election process plays out? Could it look like the attorney general in his capacity as somebody who oversees counterintelligence and national security work, suggesting that somehow there are concerns about the validity of the election results? I can't point to anything in in history quite like it, but I also can't point to anything in history quite like some of what we've seen over the past 
few years and from the Justice Department, especially under the current Attorney General. But I think the capacity to do mischief in that department in particular is high. We saw that with an Office of Legal Counsel opinion trying to bury the whistleblower complaint okay. in the face of a contrary legal interpretation by the Inspector General of the Intelligence Community. And had the Justice Department been successful, Congress might never have seen the uh, complaint that ultimately led to the second impeachment of a, of a president in American history. So the capacity to say what the law is, the capacity to be involved in counterintelligence work, the capacity to choose when to bring or not bring criminal charges, it's, it's extraordinary. It's the reason that the Justice Department has tried to have some distance from the politics of the White House in particular, especially since um, Watergate and the Nixon era. And it's why so many of us are concerned when we see those norms apparently eroding right now. Yeah, well, wow, that's amazing. As you were speaking, I had written down, there's been a lot of Office of Legal Counsel questionable opinions, including the one that gave Trump a pretext to fire Atkinson in the whistleblower complaint, basically saying, uh, nope, that's not the law. And, you know, and, and all these sort of documents that Bill Barr puts out, going all the way back to Iran-Contra, uh, and, of course, we know the, the very famous four-page uh, mischaracterization of the Mueller findings as well. So that was exactly where my brain was landing, was some sort of Office of Legal Counsel memo that just somehow allowed some sort of a question to even be raised. And as we know, Trump has a history of only needing to raise the question. For example, when he you know, went to Zelensky and said, you don't have to do an investigation, just announce it. Um, right. So, he, you know, here we are with just saying, you know, Joe Biden, now he's on to this something about Scarborough and a former employee. It's I question the integrity of the Department of Justice, but I'm also now sort of questioning the fitness of this person to be president. It's it's kind of mind boggling. It really is. And if you look back at, at, at 2016 and you hear people, in fact, like Joe Biden himself, talk about how delicately they tried to handle the very real counterintelligence concerns that they began to see coming, what we now look back as is Russian interference, the overriding imperative, the thing that led that White House, and I was at that White House but not working on these issues, but the thing that drove that White House to, in a sense, do less rather than do more, not speak out more about the manipulation of public opinion that was happening on social media in the midst of an election cycle, was an overriding desire not to put a finger on the scales of an election and not even to look like the executive branch, that a particular president or particular administration was putting a finger on those, those scales. Think about how far we've fallen from that to where we are now, where it's obvious to all of us that the president is with virtually every tweet over a holiday weekend even with everything he's trying to get the country to talk about other than this horrible pandemic and how badly he's handled it he's very much trying to put a finger on the scales now yes it's true that he is a candidate in that election cycle so he, he is entitled to have some voice but what he's not entitled to do is utilize the organs of government and, and, and alter that which our departments and agencies do and say in their official capacity in service of his reelection. And yet that, of course, was exactly what the Ukraine scandal was all about. And it's what Trump seems willing to do in new forms as those new forms occur to him. Yeah, I, yeah, exactly right. It hasn't stopped him before. Um, 
you know, what's the what's a constitution? You know, um, but some of us are rather fond of it. <laughs> I like it myself. <laughs> uh, but, you know, and that and we saw that uh, borne out in these Susan Rice emails that they're re-releasing. We've already read them uh, a couple years ago when they came out, uh, you know, about Obama wanting to be hands off and have the FBI handle this and let's do this by the book. And 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 so, you know, you're right. What a what a dichotomous place we find ourselves in um, <clears throat> when it comes to norms and ethics and now even the rule of law. That's right. And when when you're when your president is willing to to sow the seeds of manipulation into a system of governance, um, that seems to spread almost inkblot style. So um, the Department of Justice we talked about, that's a place that seems to be more willing to do the president's political bidding than its traditions would have allowed or even than it was at the very beginning of this administration, at least at times. Now we see somebody, first uh, there was Grinnell as acting director of national intelligence. We now have uh, Ratcliffe confirmed as the director of national intelligence, very vocally, explicitly political figures in a role that, yes, it's a political slot. It's supposed to be a presidential nominee, but that's different from politicizing it. That's different from taking the work of the intelligence community and saying the sorts of things we heard Grinnell saying, even in his short time in, in that role in an acting capacity, that really were weighing in on policy, fighting political fights on behalf of the president. Uh, and so once a president's view of the federal government is to serve political ends, personal political ends of his own, uh, you start seeing, in this case him, Donald Trump, spread people who can effectuate that for him. And that's a disturbing place to be just in terms of governance, but it's also a disturbing place to be as we think about the integrity of an election cycle that's really well upon us now. Yeah. And I'll never forget during Mueller's July testimony last year when asked, you know, um, if the Russians were interfering, he says, yes, as, as we sit here. And when asked what we can do about it, he said the single most important thing we can do is to make sure that the intelligence agencies are communicating. And and and, and who who's responsible for that now? Ratcliffe. That's Ratcliffe overseeing what's said, who says it, when it's said, what documents go. That's that's him. Well, fingers crossed, I guess. Uh, is there anything we can do in the meantime uh, other than to just continue to speak about it? I think we can do that. I think we can also at least call on, urge some of those other actors in the system um, that you and I talked about earlier to try to commit at least to this. There are so many lines that seem to have been crossed over the past few years, but to commit to this, just to ask people if you're at a town hall, when we go back to having in-person town halls or a Zoom town hall for the moment with, with a, a member of, of the House or a senator or even you know, state, local politicians to say, whatever your politics are, whatever your take on Donald Trump is, to commit to the integrity of an election cycle, to commit not to honoring a claim that votes have been changed or fraudulent votes cast just because Donald Trump or somebody very loyal to Donald Trump says so. That seems to me a commitment worth asking of elected officials across the spectrum because it begins to make this a line that I hope couldn't be crossed. And I think it's well worth asking for that sooner rather than later. Yeah, agreed. And we used to say vote in numbers too big to manipulate. And now maybe we should be saying vote in numbers too big to question. Yeah, that would help too.
All right. Well, thank you. Visiting professor at law at Georgetown and the executive director of their Institute for Constitutional Advocacy, Joshua Geltzer. Thanks again for speaking with me today. Thank you. All right. Coming up after the break, we have the Good News Block and Quarantine Confessions with Jordan Coburn. So stay with us. Hey, everybody. It's AG. I want to tell you about the most useful app on my phone. Sometimes when you're busy, it's hard to find time to sit down and read or work on a personal development project. But there's an incredible app that solves this problem, and I highly recommend it. It's called Blinkist. Blinkist is really unique, and it works on your phone, your tablet, your web browser. Uh, Blinkist takes the best key takeaways, the need-to-know information from thousands of nonfiction books and condenses them down to just 15 minutes that you can read or listen to. Uh, Successful people like business leaders uh, are well known for reading a lot of books, and Blinkist is made for busy people like you who want to get the main points of a book quickly so you can start using that information right away. This would have really come in handy when I was doing that whole uh, Six Sigma training and I I needed to read the Toyota Way and, and all of these books about uh, a business and leadership and, and systems thinking. Uh, it, it, with the with the audio feature, it, they make it easy to finish a book during your commute or on your lunch break or while you exercise. 12 million people are using Blinkist right now, and it has a massive growing library from self-help, business, health, and history books. Uh, all spectrum, uh, crumbing the whole spectrum of, of nonfiction. And they have the latest titles from bestsellers lists as well, and classic nonfiction titles you always meant to read but never had time to. Uh, I like it because it's less than 15 minutes and I can fast track my path to more information. I'm very big on continued learning uh, and I I really recommend you check it out. Uh, And with Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed nonfiction books, all the books you want for one low price, all just one price. So right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash beans to try it free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription if you decide to sign up. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, dot com slash beans to start your free seven-day trial. And you'll also save 25% off, but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com slash beans. All right, everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. And joining me today for the Good News segment and Quarantine Confessions is Jordan Coburn. Hey, Jordan. Hello. Come on down. <laughs> so exciting. <laughs> we um, we have, ooh, we've got one from Dublin today. We've got Dublin oh. listeners all around, don't we? Yeah, on our last um, happy hour, live happy hour on, on Friday, we had Rory ask mm-hmm. us a question uh and that was very wonderful i love talking to people from i love ireland so much i'm obsessed with it i have i'm not irish at all uh, but like i absolutely love that country yeah um that was fun so now we've got it now we've got a good news submission from someone else other than rory in ireland we do yes from sierra maybe Ciara. it's c-i-a-r-a but uh sh- they say Today was the first time in 65 days there were no reported deaths in Ireland relating to COVID-19. All the sacrifices of the last 10 weeks have been hard, but worth it to get here. We remember the 1,606 people who have lost their lives and are thankful for the amazing work done by those on the front line and the light at the end of the tunnel. Congratulations. Excellent. That is so excellent. Thank you for sharing that good news with us. Next up from Sarah. Sarah says, good news. I celebrated my 25th birthday on Memorial Day, 525. 
an opportunity to celebrate things in multiples of fives. I obviously couldn't gather with people to celebrate, so in an attempt to spread some joy, I created a list of 25 activities, all having to do with fives and 25s, that people could do separately, <laughs> including stuff like do five cartwheels, donate $5 to a COVID relief fund, bike 25 miles, pick up, that's a hard one, pick up five plus pieces of litter. <laughs> yeah. Uh, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. So it's like, how do I get the 25, 25 miles, miles stick? <laughs> We can just do five miles, you know. <laughs> That's so Me fun, too. though. Um, it was awesome <laughs> to do all the activities myself, but the absolute best part was getting texts all day long with pictures of people doing the activities and having fun with it, especially cartwheel videos. It was wonderful to feel connected to all of these important people in my life and to feel like they were passing the fun forward. Thank you for all you ladies do. Your reporting of the news is an important part of my day, and I love your message of spreading love and kindness into the world. Stay safe. Aww. That's such an adorable Thanks. idea i love that yeah. happy birthday and jordan ha having been a professional gymnast yourself i don't know if you've experienced this but i've tried to do a couple of adult cartwheels and it's very um it's pretty pathetic yes a cartwheel is a very it's one of those things where like if you had it as a kid it's pretty hard to lose it i feel like uh most of it is just like flexibility honestly that makes that's probably the hardest part about it but yes watching people try cartwheels that we're not properly cartwheel uh, stretched over extended periods of their childhood is is uh, hilarious to me because <laughs> it's very yeah. Like, and I and I was <laughs> really good at cartwheels and round offs when I was a kid, back bends like standing back bends and and back walkovers. But dude, as a grown up man, um, yeah, those hip flexors are like, what yes. are you? Why? Are you, Yes, shouldn't and the hamstring. Should be sitting down. Yes, <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah, and you have to have some pretty pretty good oblique strength to pull your body up sideways like that too. Yep, yep. You know, absolutely. So that's fun. Yeah, totally. Yes, it's always fun watching people be all disoriented when they come up from a cartwheel too, <laughs> like not knowing which way they're facing or like what the hell is happening. <laughs> Making sure you're not in traffic, even though you're in your backyard. It just feels yeah. like you could. Feels like you could finish anywhere. Like, whoa. yeah. I have such a distinct memory of there used to be these massive Fourth of July barbecues that this one gym family would host every year, and like it was the whole thing that the whole mm. team did, and everybody would go over, and they were just like massive epic block parties. And one time, our coach, who kind of was like pretty like serious most of the time, you know, like she was definitely very respected, and um she got she was kind of drunk and i remember her so distinctly being like i'm gonna do an aerial which is just like a cartwheel with no hands you know she's like i'm gonna do it and everyone's like everyone let's go watch her do it do an aerial and she was she was like drunk which is just hilarious to kids when you're younger and we <laughs> none of us drank because we were all fucking losers and so everybody <laughs> that's the wrong message to send that was just a joke winners kids, if you're listening you were winners winners we were winners we could flip sure I didn't kiss a boy till I forced one to do it when I was 18 years old. But that's beside the point. We were the cool ones. But we and he wasn't all... a gay Mormon at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we just, uh, but we all gathered around and, and watched her do it. And if my memory is correct, I think she, she, she was either pretty close or successful, which was incredible. So anyways, love a good drunk cartwheel aerial session. I highly encourage it if you can do it safely. Uh, no, this podcast does not encourage you to <laughs> drink and try uh no handed cartwheel thank you, yes. thank you. <laughs> all right next up from mo mo says costa rica just legalized same-sex marriage 
It is the sixth nation in Latin America to throw off a law that did nothing but discriminate. The ban against same-sex marriage expired and the courts ended the ban. Article is published in the LA Times, if you want to look at it. Uh, that's fantastic. It's fucking every time I read that bit of news from different parts of the world, I'm just met with, you know, simultaneously celebration and also like, fuck, that sucks so bad that it was like that for so long in that area and that it's still like that in other areas. People literally die from just being outed or, or just it's it's awful so that's that's amazing uh that's a huge step in the continued fight for that equality and congratulations to costa rica yes 100 percent. good news very good news our final piece of good news comes from dave dave says i've been practicing martial arts for over 15 years and today while practicing in my garage <laughs> my garage dojo my five-year-old daughter asked me to start teaching her how to defend herself i'm a very proud dad Aww. of a tough little girl yes montage we need a montage we do you're the best around (laughs) nothing's ever gonna bring you down you're the best around what i wonder what he calls his garage dojo yeah let us know dave that's so funny koala kai (laughs) i love i love that i love teaching self-defense to young women and just children in general, honestly, that's so fun. Good on you. It's so good. It's so good for your like self-defense. It's good for your mental uh, focus. It's good for, I mean, there's just so many benefits to it. It's meditative. Uh, it, it teaches you not to fight if you don't have to. I love it. I lo- yeah. I'm, I'm a big fan. So that's awesome. Five yeah. years old? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Super cool. Thank you, Dave. Uh, that finishes up good news for today everybody you can submit those to us go to our pinned tweet at daily beans pod on twitter and follow that link it'll show you exactly where to submit them or you can go to our website and it's in the top right hand corner i believe the submission form uh that's (laughs) good news are you ready for quarantine confessions Yes, I am. Let's hear it. I'm so excited about, I'm so excited. This is my, my new favorite thing. We are overwhelmed with responses. Keep sending them because it's going to be its own show starting June 6th. You're going to get it in your feed. Uh, patrons, it'll be in your premium feed for you already. It's going to be pretty great. I'm excited about it. I'm so excited too. Uh, all right. Our first one comes from Jay and Rosie. This is an update to our howling slash going feral confession. Our feral metamorphosis is almost complete. We bought clippers to give the poor dogs a much needed quarantine haircut. My wife, who has given up on hair removal during these times and whatever she wants to do is okay by me since she's a healthcare worker and dealing with COVID patients. Uh, We had just tag teamed and cut the most wiggly of the dogs. Bella, a Shih Tzu, a.k.a. a Karen type that would like to speak to a manager, but that's another story. (laughs) (laughs) Now now all Shih Tzus are going to be named Karen in my head. (laughs) Oh, God. That's so funny. Um, Rosie (laughs) looks at the clippers, then at her legs, and proceeds to groom herself while I and the dogs look on in horror. She declared it had done a better job than anything else she had tried. 
They definitely cut better than the human clippers we have been using on myself. So I have also used the dog clippers to have my head, uh, to shave my head now. Thank you again for, <laughs> have my head. Like, well, that escalated quickly. Uh, <laughs> take, take the whole thing right off. Head. <laughs> like, how did you finish this email? Uh, <laughs> thank you again for news with swears and laughs. We love you, ladies. Stay safe. Thank you. We love you, too. Thank you. Uh, so oh, funny. That's funny. I know. Now I'm going to get the dog clippers. Yeah. I love hearing the comedic voices of the people that write these in. So fun. Okay. Next up from at dad shoes on Twitter. That's D-A-D-S-H-E-W-S on Twitter. Okay. So a little piece of context for this confession. Me and my group of late 30s, early 40s male friends are still basically intellectual children, despite our otherwise adults with are otherwise adults with families and jobs lifestyle. So we're having an extended and quite boozy Zoom happy hour, and as things devolve, a name change occurs on the screen. Our friend, formerly known as Dan, was now identified by the handle Girth Brooks. Well, let's just say that this went over very well. Before long, we were all sporting hilarious dick-themed names. I'll spare you the roll call. I want to hear the roll call. If you're on Twitter, which you are, hit me up at Jordan's Confused. Blast us with the roll call. Uh, so a couple of weeks go by, no Zoom meetings, and then my four-year-old son preschool class had a little show and tell. We log on. 10 windows of kids and their parents and teachers and there he is my son as he will henceforth be known lightning penis (laughs) (laughs) four four years old oh my god the whole room hears me say oh my god and i log out we logged back in with my work account (laughs) and it went fine no big deal but holy shit (laughs) fucking lightning penis i mean people can take a joke and something like girth brooks is an obvious play on words obviously a joke whatever but lightning penis that's just weird (laughs) as fuck they're going to be like what's that guy doing on zoom is fucking lightning penis Anywho, listen oh every day. God. Love you guys. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> oh my God, that's wonderful. We did that in in uh, when I was in the <gasps> Navy in A school. We had to have name tags on the front of our desks so that the instructor who came in, who you know, we would stay in the same classroom. They would rotate instructors would know our names, and mm-hmm. so you just put your last name on an index card and you tape it to your, the de- to the front of your desk, and we had all alternate names so you could actually lift up and fold back the index card and there would be one underneath it so like petty officer Beatty was petty officer beefy um i was petty officer guilty uh we had echo instead of i can't remember his real name but we had we just had all these hilarious names and whenever a substitute came in we would flip them up and then try not to laugh when the substitute was like petty officer beefy you know we would just try not to laugh i love that shit it's the best that kind of humor is the absolute best when you're like just trying to contain it and everyone it's the, it's so fucking funny um yep. <laughs> god i love that ah uh, next up from kimberly kimberly says confessions I do our shopping for a family of five and lie every time I come back. It's inevitable. I will forget something and I've just been blaming COVID for forgetting. My kids think Lucky Charms is going out of business. I only buy when things are on sale. (laughs) I love it. Lucky Charms are such weird 
50% enjoyable cereal. I don't under I never understood Lucky Charms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's one of those uh teaches you that that you know, life has happy moments. It's not you're not always happy. Right. I think it was <laughs> Yeah. I think That's it was so true. <laughs> I think it was you know, uh, I think it was Dennis Leary who maybe said this. He probably stole it from Judd Apatow. But you know, he's like, look, happiness isn't something that you attain. It's a it's a chocolate chip cookie or it's a cigarette butt or it's a five second orgasm, you know? Mm-hmm. You you eat the cookie, you smoke the butt, you come, you wake up in the morning, you go back to fucking work. That's how it goes. <laughs> you know? That's how lucky charms make me feel. Like Yeah. All right, life is life is mostly bland oats, but there's some marshmallows here and there. Awesome. Yes, my older sister, if my memory is correct, if my mom is listening, she can correct me, or ja- or I guess Jackie would know she's younger. But, um, but she, my older sister used to eat the, all the marshmallows out of it. So like, oh, we wouldn't have Lucky Charms for more than a couple of days before it would just be all of the the cardboard bullshit Jack crap. <laughs> it's like yeah, classic. I hate myth. those. Um, next up from Jackie, I love your show and I spend more time with you guys than anyone else online or in person with the exception of my dear, awesome second husband of 10 years, whose nightly crunching of cheese its during movie watching. I endure with a special silent eye roll, which you totally get to kick out of. It seems the cheese its thing is my only real pandemic pet peeve. We both binged and splurged on a variety of tasty treat food the first month of the pandemic. And then I quit lead by example, right? You see, in recent normal times, I Wrong. was a yoga- <laughs> yeah. in, in recent normal times, I was a yoga fit cafeteria vegan who avoided sugar and loved cooking all of our savory and nutrient dense food while busting my beloved sneaking of salty high fat guy food in quotes. And then my true confession, my husband was burying his crunchy Klondike wrappers under the kitchen garbage and found my Nutter Butter four pack wrappers. There were a lot of them <laughs> leading by example as many layers. Oh, that's so funny. You both were, you're doing each other dirty. You both had, you both had like bad food wrappers hidden in the same place. Yeah. That's like, that's like the pina colada song. Like the two people who were like looking for love out of their marriage and found each other through, yes. through an ad. Yes. That's so funny. Oh my goodness. I love that. Do you like peanut nutter butters? Ooh. Or Klondike bars. Yeah, and then you could just put the wrappers. Put the wrappers under the sink at midnight. They, <laughs> it's gonna be good. They should make a Klondike bar that's pina colada flavored. Mm. Or or another butter, a peanut butter, crunchy peanut oh, butter uh, Klondike bar. Yes. God. Oh, I miss yeah. ice cream. I could get it, I guess. I don't know why I said it like that. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's available. <laughs> oh, God. All right. I probably will. Um, all right. Finally, from Sarah. Sarah says, I ordered a jar of Biscoff butter, like Nutella, except from cinnamon biscuits. I am aware of what that is, and it's fucking amazing. Off of Amazon a week mm. ago. It was a moment of weakness, as I had been trying my best to be a good patron for local small businesses, but the combination of stress, my period, and existential dread at 2 a.m. pushed me over the edge. As if that wasn't shameful enough, I've already eaten a third of the jar all by myself and it arrived yesterday. In case anyone was wondering, I do not spread it on anything. I eat it with a spoon. Thank you for everything you do. (laughs) I super appreciate the humor and analysis you bring to the news. Thank you, Sarah. I think that's the only way you're supposed to eat that. Really? I don't think it's meant to be put on anything at all. What else are you going to do? You could put it on a cinnamon bun, but like, really? 
yeah that that it's it sounds a lot like the cookie butter from trader joe's which is Mm. the best thing to ever grace joe's shelf it is so Mm. fucking good it hurts how good it is ah you could probably freeze that and kind of eat it like ice like ice cream Ooh, 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 yeah, make like pops, like like yeah. pudding pops, but with mm. the, oh, God, I miss pudding pops. I don't think I've ever had a, a pudding pop. Do you make a pudding pop? I think or, they went away. you buy them? No, they were Jell-O pudding pops, P- P-U-D-D-I-N, <laughs> pudding pops, uh, and they were amazing. You could get mm. them in chocolate, vanilla, and butterscotch, and they were just frozen pudding pops, and, and oh, my God, they were so good. They, those need to come back. I don't care what Bill Cosby did. Yum. Oh, that's right, huh? He didn't invent them. He just was a spokesperson. That's true. He shouldn't have to fucking... We shouldn't have to all suffer even more than he already made people suffer. Give us the pudding pops. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Give us the pudding pops. Step away. No one will get hurt. I want to try one now. I've not even had one and I want it. So delicious. Very sad. (laughs) I went to uh, this, this really fun you know euro trip when i graduated high school with my friend and we went to italy and we were at a gelato shop and i got the nutella flavor because it just looked amazing and i get it and it's literally just a giant scoop of frozen nutella (laughs) like no gelato whatsoever it was just a whole fucking thing of nutella which is what you should do with that that butter yep that's it that's all of our quarantine confessions awesome Awesome. And I bet that that giant scoop of frozen Nutella is just what they give Americans, like the real gelato. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Back yeah. there, like, mm. yeah, that's so true. We got to get that Canadian backpack patch, man. Telling you uh-huh. what, you'll get the real stale. The, you'll get the real uh, Nutella gelato. Yeah. That's a great point. You're probably right. It was a very touristy area. <laughs> <laughs> Everything in Italy is a touristy area when you think about it. Yeah, totally. Such a beautiful country. All right. Well, thank you for all of your quarantine confessions. Please continue to send them in. We're going to need them for our weekly show. Uh, and I appreciate you so much sending them in because th- th- these this is like literally the best part of my day <laughs> hearing these. They're so good. They're so and you guys good. are so funny. Yeah. Our listeners are so funny. Yeah, oh they really God. are. We had some really good ones today. All right. Well, thanks for that. Any final thoughts before we get out of here? Not that I can uh, think of now. Yep. Enjoy your short, short week working from home. Um, <laughs> yeah. Everybody, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet. And take care of your mental health. I've been AG. I've been Jordan Coburn. And them's the beans. The Daily Beans is executive produced and directed by AG and Jordan Coburn and engineered and edited by Mackenzie Mazell and Starburns Industries. Our marketing manager, executive assistant, production and social media direction is Amanda Reeder. Fact-checking and research by AG, Jordan Coburn, and Amanda Reeder. Our music is written and performed by They Might Be Giants. Our web design and branding are by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. And our website is dailybeanspod.com. <laughs>